set me up for that. <laughs> well, putting that aside, welcome to True Tales Live on stage. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm really happy to introduce our show to you today. We just heard from Catherine Tucker Windham, who was speaking at the age of 92, as she told you, at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling um, Festival about the importance of storytelling. And it's a sen sentiment that we at True Tales Live wholeheartedly believe, and it's what inspires us to continue to do this show year after year. True Tales Live is a first-person experience storytelling program, and we produce it most months at the um, Portsmouth Public Media TV, which is Channel 98 ca Cable Access in Portsmouth. We actually began as a radio program in 2014 and then moved to Cable Access TV in 2016. We have, through most of all that time, I believe, starting in 2014, been having at least one show every fall here um, at this festival as a closer, and we are just so happy to continue to be able to, be able to do that. So as I said, the stories today that you'll hear are first-person experience. That means that each of these people is going to come out and tell you a true story from their own lives. We do encourage the development of storytelling skills. We have monthly workshops and give other assistance to tellers. But this is not a competition. We don't have any scoring or ranking or judgment. We believe that everyone is a storyteller and has a story to tell. And that stories shared from the heart inspire and uplift us and bind us together. Through storytelling, people from vastly different backgrounds and life experiences can connect and bridge differences to help build the sort of healthy, vibrant communities that all of us want to live in. Our monthly shows generally have a theme to help people get people's minds turn on what stories they have to share. And today our theme is Rising to the Challenge. We have six storytellers coming up. You'll hear from Bill Maddox, Nina Lasiga, Beth Tenner, Martin Rumscheid, Matthew Francis, and Pat Spaulding. Um, I need to tell you that unlike in your program, Tina Charpentier won't be here today. She is very sick. And um, her voice, we spoke with her, and she, we, you do not want to hear from her today. So she is very, very sad not to be here with you, and we're really sad not to have her. But um, Pat Spaulding is going to step up and share a story in her place. So that is a plan. Each of these storytellers will be introduced to you by our MC, Pat Spaulding. And let's welcome her up here to get us going with the stories. Come on up, Pat. Hello, everybody. <clears throat> a little voice practice before I begin. Speaking of voices, uh, this is great to see such a full house. We're going to have a good time. I'm pleased to introduce the first person on the roster. Now, all of these stories have come from various shows that we've done at PPM TV, and they all have a, a specific theme. So, coincidentally, the first two tellers will tell you stories from our theme, Affecting Change, Standing Up. And the third 
person in the set will tell a story on the theme of losses. First up, we have Bill Maddox. He lives in Amherst, New Hampshire with his wife, Lynn, and their rescue dog, Liddy. He works at UNH. Bill is active in the peace movement and in anti-racism and pro-immigrant work right here in New Hampshire. Back in the mid-1970s, he was part of the National United Farm Workers Boycott. During a major campaign event in San Francisco, he played a small but pivotal role in a big rally where UFW leader Cesar Chavez was to appear. We think it is important now to revisit the history of those times. So let Bill take us there with his story, Caesar's Podium. Come on up, Bill. Thank you, Pat. It's good. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I was a child of the 1960s and was heavily influenced by the movement against the Vietnam War and the civil rights struggle. So when I came of age, I wanted to become an activist, but I didn't really know how I wanted to get involved. And I didn't know anything about Cesar Chavez and the farm workers' struggle until I heard Cesar speak at the cathedral in Providence, Rhode Island in the spring of 1975. Cesar Chavez was a Gandhi-like figure who preached a gospel of nonviolence. Uh, Caesar represented some of the poorest paid and hardest working people in the United States, farm workers in California and other parts of the United States. And he had formed a farm workers union to basically struggle against the growers to bring up the wages and working conditions for his fellow farm workers. So at this incredible rally, um, which was a a packed cathedral in, in downtown Providence, Caesar talked about how the consumer boycott was really the only ray of hope that farm workers had. It was the only open door to the possibility of them having better lives. And he talked about the way that we could all get involved, that we could be part of this boycott, we could be part of the struggle by not buying grapes, lettuce, gallo wine. Uh, it was a very simple message, but a very powerful message. The idea was that the boycott would bring the growers to their knees and to the bargaining table, and they would win justice for farm workers. I was so fired up by this message. I couldn't uh, believe that um, these conditions were going on and that we were really in this uh, place in 1976. And so when Caesar said that they needed people on the picket lines, they needed people to be out there to bring the boycott message all over the country, I was right there. In fact, I made a vow that day that I would begin picket lines immediately, and that's what I did. I went out to my local star market, and I started picket lines. I organized people to come out, and every week we were out there with our signs and, and spreading the farm worker message. After a few months of this, um, I had lost my job. I was really looking for an opportunity to get involved full-time. I decided to join the Farm Workers Union, and that's exactly what I did. I became a boycott organizer and was paid what everybody else in the union was paid, $5 a week in room and board, if you could organize it. So after several months of working in New England, we were all called, all the boycott organizers all around the country were called to a major campaign that the Farm Workers Union was conducting in California. They got a referendum on the ballot to create a farm workers agricultural protection law. And we needed to work on uh, building the public support to make this pass in November. 
So I was assigned to San Francisco. I was in charge of logistics and housing. And um, I was told after a few weeks of being there that Caesar would be coming to town and there would be a major rally and I would be in charge of logistics for that rally. The rally was going to be held at Mission Dolores. Uh, Mission Dolores is a, a sprawling Catholic uh, mission complex in the Mission District of San Francisco. And so it was my job to make sure that the room was set up with chairs, uh, that there was a uh, podium for Caesar, and that there was a place for the bishop and, and, the, and Caesar and other dignitaries to sit at. So I got to the church early with my fellow boycotteros, my, my fellow volunteers, and um, we looked all over um, the room, and there was like the perfect podium. It was, well, it was a music stand, just like that. And we put up there in the front of the room. I took the farm worker flag and hung it on the front of it, and I said, ah, oh, my work is done. I felt very, very proud. The room is ready for Caesar. This is going to be an exciting event. Well, at that particular time, uh, this campaign was really ramping up. The growers were spending $30 million to defeat this, and um, just kind of as we have today, there were vigilante groups who were racist groups who hated the Farm Workers Union and hated Caesar. In fact, we were getting 10 death threats a day against Caesar's life. So it was a very, very critical time. Caesar's security detail uh, were top notch. Uh, they had been trained by Bobby Kennedy's people and they went everywhere with Caesar. And, and in fact, an advanced team uh, was going to be coming to the auditorium to check things out. And that day we actually had a secret weapon. We had um, volunteers from an organization called Mission Rebels. Mission Rebels was a rehabilitation program for ex-convicts uh, that helped them to mainstream themselves back into life. And so these were big, brawny guys who were going to be sprinkled through the audience kind of indiscriminately just in case there was a problem. So we felt pretty secure. Then the uh, security contingent came in, the advance crew, and the head of the, the security a team was a guy named Paco. He was a formidable Chicano guy, and he came in, very serious customer, and he came up to me, and he pointed at the podium. He says, what the hell is that? I said, well, it's a podium. I was told Caesar needed a podium to speak at. He said, that's not a podium. That's a music stand. <laughs> so you think when Caesar Chavez is being threatened, when his life is right on the line, he's going to crouch behind that and no, no, he's not going to crouch behind that. He's not going to speak unless you find a big, sturdy wooden podium. Within the next hour, Caesar's not going to speak. I was flabbergasted. I didn't know anything about Mission Dolores or where I could find anything like this. I ran out with some of my boycott, boycott arrows. We ran down the corridor. We ran down the stairs. And we went room to room throughout this giant complex. And we couldn't find anything. Finally, we came to a room and I opened the door and there it was, a big wooden podium, about two feet wide and four feet high. And there's a gentleman standing before it and people around him. And on the front of the podium, it said, AA. I had, <laughs> I had stumbled upon a Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Spanish. <laughs> so I went up to the gentleman and I said, Senor, es muy, muy importante. Senor Cesar Chavez está aquí muy pronto. Necesito ir. Of course, my Spanish was terrible. And one of my fellow boycotteros who actually did speak Spanish said, Bill, let me talk to the gentleman. <laughs> so he talked to the gentleman, explained the whole situation, 
after their confusion was uh, relieved, they said, yes, you can take it, just bring it back. So we were all set. We just had to get this podium up to the auditorium where Caesar was going to speak. Well, when we tried to pick it up, we realized it wasn't just a podium. It was actually a storage locker for books, probably <laughs> filled with Bibles and hymnals, and it was locked. So when we tried to pick it up, it was enormously heavy, probably weighed 300 pounds. So we flopped it over inside like a casket, and several of us carried it down the corridor and across the courtyard, and then we had to go up two flights of stairs. So we slowly went up the stairs, and we got to the landing, and it almost killed us. We, were, we had to take a break and rest for a while. And then we got up the stairs to the second landing. Again, we were just completely spent. This thing was just so enormously heavy. We took another break, got it across the auditorium, brought it over to uh, the front of the auditorium, and I took the farm worker flag that I had put on the uh, podium, the music stand, moved it over to the real podium, and um, finally I felt like we were safe, like we could go. So um, soon people started filtering in. Uh, Paco, the head of security, came back. He looked at the podium, the real podium, and he kind of gave a approving look and also a dismissive look. And I was like, okay, that's all right. I'm, I'm, I was able to do this. Um, when Caesar came, the room was packed. It was electric. He was an incredibly powerful speaker. And this is a very heady time. We were you know, fighting a, a major battle for the farm worker union all over the state. And so Caesar spoke about the necessity for everybody to do everything they possibly could, knock on every door, go across California, and convince people that it was time for justice for farm workers. Um, it was just the most moving speech. And of course, after he was done speaking, we do what we always do at farm worker events. We sang, De Colores, and we, we said our farm worker chants, Si se puede, viva la huelga! And then, before you know it, Caesar and his security contingent left, and that was it. The rally was over. But the 300-pound podium was still there. <laughs> Fortunately, we had the mission rebels who were there to help us. There was no incident, so their services were not needed, but they said, we'll help you with the podium. Six of them got on it to carry it, and they couldn't believe how heavy it was, these big, burly guys, but they were able to take care of it. So in the end, we didn't win. Uh, it was very sad. It was a very hard-fought campaign. Um, the whole struggle for Agricultural Labor Relations Act for farm workers was not going to happen. But I realized from the incident and from my experience in the farm workers that day that the contribution of one person to a movement is incredibly important. And in fact, it was all of those individual acts that was done, you know, not only the farm workers who were struggling and who, who were carrying their message to the public, but the public themselves who decided not to buy these products and the millions of people that really made a difference. That was the kind of uh, movement that Caesar had called for and that was happening. Well, fast forward to 2019, and the struggle for farm workers continues. Some of the very issues that we saw as important in, in the mid-1970s haven't changed a bit here in 2019. The farm workers are still faced with very difficult working conditions. 
children many times in the fields with them. The pay and the uh, benefits for farm workers is not anywhere near it should be. And there's the constant struggle and, and threat against deportation, against La Migra, against ICE. So in many ways, we're really still in the same place. So it's very important here in 2019, as it was back in 1976, that people be aware of what's going on with farm workers, that they support farm, farm workers, and be part of the struggle for justice. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Next up, we have Nina Lusiga. She came all the way from Stratford, Connecticut today, although she's lived most of her life in Brooklyn, New York. Following a 30-year career as a corporate chemist, she is now a storyteller and a ukuleleist. <laughs> I didn't know that was a word. <laughs> Whose passion is to create immersive experiences for learning and entertainment. Nina has told stories all over New England at Massmouth, the Northeast, and White Mountain Storytelling Festivals, and at the Granite State Story Swap. In Bridgeport, Connecticut, she is co-organizer of Pachacucho Night, visual storytelling. This afternoon, Nina will tell us a New York story about an adventure outside of her comfort zone that changed her. It is titled, Coming Out. Come on up, Nina. I had a confession to make. I'm a closet musician. <laughs> it was fall of 2017, and I was in an artist studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It's in the middle of a hipster neighborhood. It was my friend, Kalen. He's a puppeteer, and his art is way out there. He mostly performs in the subway. We met after a show, and he's half my age. He asked me, why can't you perform in public? And I said, I don't really know. Maybe I can perform with you on the subway one day. He didn't say yes. <laughs> but he reached behind him. There was a cubby, and he pulled out this teeny tiny flyer. He said to me, here, maybe you'll do this. It's Global Elevator Day. It's a day of art exhibits and pop-up music performances inside elevators. <laughs> Will you do it? I said, no. <laughs> but when I went home, I Googled elevator art. And I was amazed. There were elevators decorated like Victorian mansions. There were people dressed in business suits wearing animal heads. There were small orchestras inside playing Mozart. This is guerrilla style art. You go into your elevator, you do your art, and you get out. <laughs> that 
was so me. <laughs> I changed my mind. In December 2017, I told Kalen, I'm going to do it. My place, Macy's Herald Square. <laughs> and, and Kalen said to me, Nina, you sure you want to do it there? You might have a run-in with Macy's security. And I well knew that security was tighter than usual that year because of some terror terrorist incident. So I ran the risk of getting strip searched. <laughs> On December 12, 2017, I stood in front of Macy's where the Thanksgiving Day Parade passes by. And on my back was a knapsack with a ukulele sticking up. And I was kind of vibrating. I didn't know what I was going to do. I took a deep breath. And then I walked through the front door and this whoosh of hot air hit me and I go oh man I have to take off my jacket so I put my pack my backpack down by the Louis Vuitton section and security swoops over like they knew I was up to something <laughs> he asked is that a ukulele in your backpack Indeed it is. We love the ukulele in Macy's. Will you play a song? Oh, sure. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. He said, I love that. Thank you so much. I said, you're welcome. Happy holidays. And I walked very quickly to the elevator bank. And it was holiday time. It was mobbed, crazy mobbed of holiday shoppers. And so I took my ukulele back out of the backpack and I posed by the elevators. And when the first elevator came up that I could fit, I walked in and I played. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. Everyone on the elevator looked up. <laughs> Where there's lists of floors and what is on each floor, they ignored me like a beggar on the subway. And I had tears in my eyes. I didn't know what to do. And this little voice in my head said, you need to get off now. <laughs> so I did, and I came up with a plan. I stepped into another elevator, and I played, you've got a friend in me. But first... I made an announcement. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Nina, and today is Global Elevator Day. In elevators all around the world, musicians are playing. I was chosen especially for Macy's because <laughs> my song is from Toy Story, and Santa Claus is here. 
mothers held their children tighter. <laughs> Kids looked up to me with Christmas morning eyes and their mouths like Cheerios, like they had just seen the tooth fairy. And then people started to bob their head to the beat of the music. And this gentleman right across from me says, hey, little lady, do you know how to play Desperado? <laughs> I would. I don't know that one. And I stepped off and I said to myself, you are killing this. <laughs> No one in this elevator suspects that the only song you know <laughs> is You've Got a Friend in Me. It was time to take a celebratory photo. I was on the eighth floor, and the only person nearby was this middle-aged, normal-looking guy. And I said, he's perfect. <laughs> Sir! Would you take a photo of me playing the ukulele in the next elevator? He said, sure. So I hand him my camera, and we both step into the elevator. And from I don't know where, all these people came into the elevator, and we got separated. I was about to kiss my camera goodbye. So in the airspace, I said, are you still there? He replied, I'm Walter. Who are you? <laughs> Walter, I'm Nina, and I am the musician playing in Macy's today for Global Elevator Day. Do you want to hear a song? He said, sure do. And I played, and people smiled, and people even took out cameras and took their own photos. And as people left, they applauded. And then it was time for Walter to take my photo. Walter, take a photo like this. And like this. And like this. Well, when we got back to the ground floor, he handed back my camera, thank goodness. And he faced me outside the elevator. I was still inside. And he said, I would really like to do that again. <laughs> well, get back in here. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> that day, I sang in Macy's elevator until my voice wore out. I spent three hours. And what I learned was that I was a closet musician because I was afraid of making mistakes. And my audience didn't care about my imperfections. From that day onward, I played music my way, perfectly imperfect. Sing along, please. <laughs> You've got a friend in me. Got a friend in me. When the road is rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm. 
said, oh, you've got a friend in me, yeah, you've got a friend in me. Thank you. That's the way they do things in New York. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. Now, we have all sorts of different themes and different emotional places that our storytellers go. And for our, to close our set, Beth Tenner is going to come up, and she's going to tell us a very beautiful story. Uh, Beth lives in Portsmouth and works as a facilitator with organizations working on social and environmental change. She is passionate about working in ways that engage everyone's ideas and strengthen the fabric of community, as are we. While she's had plenty of experience in front of groups, this is only her second time doing storytelling with a personal story. Soon after Beth moved to the seacoast, she had a profound experience of loss, which was also a profound experience of love. She is currently writing a memoir about it. Her story is titled, I See You. Come on up, Beth. It was love at first phone call. A mutual friend had introduced me to Rick, and our first phone call lasted an hour and a half. And I was immediately drawn to his vibrant personality. He is a food scientist, but before that he'd been in musical theater, and he was writing a musical, and he was taking a glassblowing class. And what I even liked more than all that was he was really good at asking me a lot of good questions and taking a real genuine interest in me. And our second phone call lasted four hours with a bathroom break in the middle. <laughs> and I was really having a crush on him. I still didn't even know what he looked like. And luckily our first week when we had our first date, we were attracted to each other and we had four dates in the first week. On our third date, I was sitting at his house on a stool uh, in his kitchen as Rick was preparing dinner. And he was a very inventive chef and he was making some creative lentil stew. And I was just watching him and thinking, I want to say I love you to him, but I just met him like this week and my previous relationship I'd been in for eight or nine years that was full of doubt and should we be in it or not and it had taken forever to say I love you. So I was sitting there thinking I can't say this. And then Rick walked up to me and he put his arms around me and he kissed me and he said, Beth, I love you. And I started laughing. I'm like, I was about to say the same thing. And so as the relationship progressed, I got a little nervous that I might lose myself in this relationship because I can tend to be a people pleaser and be molding and go along with, with what others want. And Rick was really good about setting a different tone. So he would always ask me, what do you need? How's your heart? And this was really good because it really actually helped me more find myself than lose myself. And at one point he said to me, uh, Beth, I see my job in this lifetime as helping you be as Beth as you can be. 
And he didn't do this with just me. He did this with like all his friends, where people were friends or his students he taught grad school would find themselves becoming more courageous and more themselves in, in Rick's presence and his encouragement. And he was also so emotionally intelligent, sometimes he would do these things and I, I would stand back and I would go, okay, just tell me, are you from the future? <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward four years and that quality of love hadn't changed. Every time I came to his house, he'd be greeting me with this huge hug, like you're here. And I would do the same. And so we decided to bring our lives together. And uh, his, his best friend, Jack, was, had some land over in Nottingham in New Hampshire. And so we decided to build a house there. And we got really deep into the house plans. I work, as you heard, in the environmental field. So I wanted to build it passive solar with big windows and geothermal heat pumps and gardens. And Rick wanted, had all these plans for um, a music, like having his music room and um, wanted a pizza oven outside. But he didn't like the bugs, so he wanted the pizza oven to go in right through the screen porch so you wouldn't have to go outside. <laughs> So we had, it was really fun. So we had all these plans coming together as one-of-a-kind house. But what we didn't plan on was cancer. And we had just put the foundation of this big concrete foundation in the ground in November, and we learned that he had a tumor in his kidney. And so pretty quickly, we were able to get him surgery, and you have two kidneys, so they felt like they got it all, and he recovered and was doing quite well um, with one kidney. And so we proceeded building the house and with our plans to move our two apartments into this house. And so that was in November. And so we're house building all the way through getting it all framed up in all the rooms. By August, uh, it was almost ready to move in. And we learned that his cancer recurred. It actually recurred in the uh, cavity where the first, uh, where they had taken out the kidney, which wasn't good. And so we tried more drugs and chemo and every kind of alternative therapy we could track down um, and another major surgery. So between that August through the end of the year, whatever we tried, uh, Rick still kept getting weaker. And at this point, we had moved into that new house and we just loved it, but Rick's health kept going downhill. And uh, by like January, he could really just shuffle between the bedroom and the bathroom. And his legs had gotten really thick with fluid. That happens when you have cancer. So he was quite weak, but he was kind of heavy and unstable. So we really were much more at our house most of the time. And before cancer, I felt like we had both roamed this big geography, you know, with our lives traveling and work and seeing friends and, you know, pursuing all our varied interests. And when cancer came, it was like everything got condensed down to this almost like an hourglass. And you just had to focus on what will support life today and how can I love you today. By early February, uh, Rick had a day where he was quite weak and the doctors felt like he needed a blood transfusion. So we went to the hospital in Exeter. And we were there most of the day, and his breathing was getting weak, so he was on an oxygen uh, mask there. And through the day, they had the blood, gave him a whole transfusion. And by the end of the day, most people had gone home in this room. Uh, it was just me and him and the nurse. And so we were getting him up to leave, and he took the oxygen off, and we were trying to put his coat on. And all of a sudden, he panicked. He's like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And it was so scary. And so uh, the nurse and I got the oxygen mask back on. And Rick was someone who was claustrophobic, like he always had this thing about not, not like worrying if he couldn't breathe well. 
And so I conferred with the nurse, should we check him into the hospital? Should we take him home? And you know, they usually don't want you to go into the hospital. So she, she was saying, we could get an oxygen machine at home if you can just get him from here back home, which is about a 25 minute drive. So that's what we did. And uh, we slowly got Rick out of, uh, off the oxygen and out to the car. And I was nervous um, for obvious reasons, but also another time I'd been trying to get Rick in the house because his legs were so heavy and he was weak, he had fallen and I couldn't pick him up by myself and we'd had to call 911. So knowing this, I decided to call ahead to our new neighbors, Robin and Arthur, this wonderful couple next door and ask if they could meet me at home and help me just get Rick in from the car. So uh, we drove home, we left the hospital both of us, I know, were pretty nervous, so we didn't talk much. We just were driving home. It was February, so this last blue light of the day was fading in the sky. When we got home, uh, bless him, Arthur was there, and he had the lights on and the heat on, and he was waiting outside with the wheelchair for Rick. So very slowly, we got the wheelchair over the snow to the car door, and we got him out and into it, and he was so calm and directing us just what was needed. And so Arthur was pushing it up this wheelchair ramp that had snow on it, and I was holding his legs up, and we, it took a while, and Rick would pause and say, wait, let me catch my breath. And so we eventually got it up into the house, up through these steps, and got him in, thank God, into the light. And I said, you did it. And he sat there, and his, he was leaning down, just trying to catch his breath. And then he looked up at Arthur, and he said, Arthur, how are you? And how's Robin? <laughs> and uh, we all laughed. And eventually they visited. And then Arthur went home. And I leaned down. I got down at Rick's level. And I said, I saw what you just did. I know how frightening and scary that was for you to get through that. And it was such an incredible moment of courage to witness. And that was how I could love him that day and I could see in his face as he teared up knowing that I witnessed and named his courageous act. And for us that quality of how can I love you today was just saying I love you like this steady drumbeat through everything and every little gesture embodied it. So in the night if I was lying next to him and I could hear him you know in pain to reach out and grab his hand and say, I love you. Or when he would tell me about 20 times a day that I was beautiful, that was, I love you. <laughs> or when we would just sit together and commiserate about how much this sucked, that was another version of, I love you. The next morning, uh, Rick still was having trouble breathing and it was just getting more nerve wracking. And so my friend Jack and I agreed we should get him back in the hospital. So we got him back to the hospital and by that afternoon he was in the ICU and Rick was sitting up in this big recliner chair because it helped him breathe better and he had an oxygen mask on and Jack was there with me and they were like brothers they'd been friends for 20 years and so Rick he took the oxygen mask off and he looked at me and he said Beth I love you and they put it back on and I said Rick I love you and then he looked at Jack same thing he said Jack I love you and Jack said I love you, Rick. And then he looked at this young nurse and he said, you I'm not so sure about yet. <laughs> and then 
he took the mask off again and he just kind of looked at all three of us and he said, some people think that saying I love you all the time is silly. I think it is soulful and necessary. And over the next couple days, that, those actually turned out to be his final words. Uh, he went in and out of consciousness till he took his last sacred breath. And what I learned from this was, I see you, I'm here, I love you. That's how I can love you today. And that's what came through that hourglass. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. We're going to give you all a little breather to take in the variety of emotions that we've all just been through. And then um, after about 10 minutes, go um, use the restroom, have a cookie, glass water, and... Oh, raffle tickets. Hey, yes, yes. Thanks, thanks for the heads up. Yes, I've bought several, um, at least a dozen, and... Um, there's a good raffle going on that Stephanie described. Ticks are available, and so that's terrific. You know, take a chance, take a risk. It's part of life. See you in a few. So I understand that I didn't win. <laughs> Maybe Amy picked me as, um, next. <laughs> I did buy tickets. Oh, well, that's okay. I would have had to give them back had it been me. Now, in this set, we've, we've got stories from three different themes. The first two sound similar, but uh, the first theme is birth and beginnings, and the second one is baby steps. And we'll finish that. I'm going to do a story. I'm going to claim this particular theme, rising to the challenge, because I couldn't really find when I had told this story before for True Tales Live. I thought I did, but I know that it's a story I've told in some situations. But Martin Rumscheidt is going to be our first teller. He now lives in Dover, New Hampshire with his wife, Nancy Lukens. He was born in Nazi Germany in 1935. He experienced the war started by Hitler and the utter defeat of his home country. In 1952, his family left Europe for Canada where he studied theology at McGill University. Martin was ordained in 1961 in the United Church of Canada, served three congregations and in 1970, took teaching positions at universities in Windsor, Ontario, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. After retiring in 2003, he has focused his ongoing research on the Holocaust and Jewish-Christian relations. The title of his story is A Scary Escape. Come on up, Martin. We are stuck 
in a farmer's muddy field. And boy, are we stuck. If I could, I would re repeat to you all the expletives <laughs> that we uttered, all in German. It is a late November evening in 1946. Somewhere in Germany in the region where the Harz Mountains are located. We're on the road and ahead about 20-25 yards is a house. And we know that in that house the British border guards are stationed. And about 25 to 40 feet behind us is another house. And we know that the Soviet soldiers are stationed there. But in between these two houses is the boundary between the Soviet sector and the British sector. As we are approaching closer and closer to the boundary, we notice that the road is blocked. A barrier so heavy that we couldn't move it. So the driver of our truck decided we would go around it on the field, but we got stuck. And how? What are the Rumscheids about on that evening? After the liberation of Germany from the scourge of Hitler, the Allies divided Germany into sectors. And we had learned that the American and the Russian occupying troops were interested in finding as many of the scholars and researchers of German industry, of medicine, etc., and bring them either to the United States or to the Soviet Union. My father was on the list for the Soviet Union. And uh, as you may understand, it was a prospect that he and mother didn't find altogether that attractive. But we were living in the Soviet sector near the town of Nordhausen. If you know German, the, the geography, you will be able to locate that. But our house where we were living was about, uh, I would say, between an hour and an hour and 15 minute walk to the border. And so the plan was we would leave. And one evening earlier in November, father left the house and walked across the border through the woods into the British sector. That was a time when it hadn't occurred yet to people to build walls to keep others out. That's a more recent invention. But he and, he and mother had made a plan. Father on the British side was to organize an early Christmas party for the four British border guards who were living in that house on our left. And mother was to arrange an early Christmas party for the Soviet border guards in the house behind us. My father bought how he didn't I don't how he did that I don't know, 
but he ordered and bought three coaches of scotch to keep the border guards on the British side warm. <laughs> for the party hosted by my mother for the Russians, she bought three cases of vodka and hired four ladies of the night to keep those men occupied. By the time we arrived in our truck with some of our belongings, photos, etc., by the time we arrived at the border, the parties had been going on in high gear for more than a couple of hours, with a predictable effect on both sides. <laughs> but we were outside, stuck in the mud, caught right in the middle between those houses. And to make matters worse, our truck, a 1932 two-and-a-half-ton truck Opel, had no muffler. <laughs> the noise of this unmufflered truck was so noisy and so loud that one of the British soldiers said, I better go out and see what's going on. Father, of course, recognized the sound of the truck. He knew who was out there. His spouse, two of his sons, the little baby daughter, and then the driver of the truck, and the woman who had been our maid, we called her in those days, in our household. Those two, the last mentioned, would be returning to their houses and families in the Soviet sector. But father knew we were out there, and so this British soldier was about to go out. Father said, look, and do you really want to pick some dumb Russian out of the mud? Forget it. Here, have another scotch. <laughs> it worked. And so did our efforts to get unstuck. You know, going forward, backing up, going forward, backing up. The driver was behind the wheel. I sat next to him holding my little baby sister, just nine months old in those day, at that time. But my brother, my older brother, and the maid were behind, pushing and pulling, pushing and pulling. I was sitting there holding Margaret, and I moved in rhythm with this forward, backward. What was really interesting for me was that I couldn't really estimate how potentially dangerous and possibly deadly the situation was. For me, it was much more an adventure. Hey, we're fleeing from one part of the Germany. We're fleeing into the other. Wow. For an 11-year-old boy, that was quite exciting. It was later in the evening when we had gotten to a farm further down on the road, now in the British sector, unloading the materials. And then the driver and our maid, Irene, left in the truck. And of course, they knew now that where they had to get across without being stuck. They managed fine, we found out later. But when we gathered in that farmhouse, our, my father rejoined us. And he and mother embraced each other for a long, long, intimate hug. I had an inkling at that point what this successful escape meant for them. 
If we had been taken to the Soviet Union, I wouldn't be here with you today, telling you in my Queen's English with a German accent of how we got to where we are now. Had we gone to the Soviet Union, I would be telling a story to the Russians of how we got there. I'm kind of happy that that didn't happen. <laughs> Mum and Dad didn't tell us about that evening until much, much later. By that time, I was already well into my studies to seek ordination and to prepare myself for a career as a professor of theology. My life's vocations. Now let me end my story with a statement that I make as an ordained minister and as a professor of theology. You'll understand why I just said that. The experience of that night and everything that came together in it makes me thank the Creator for the people who made the scotch <laughs> and who made the vodka. And I also thank the Creator, the Holy One, for enabling those four ladies of the night who had really become our guardian angels in the truest sense of that word. Thank you to all the workers in Scotland and in Russia. Thank you for these women. And thank you that I can be among you now. Thanks. Thank you, Martin. We're glad you're here, too, with us. <laughs> Next up, we have Matthew Francis. He is an educational speaker and author of the book, My Resurrected Spirit. Um, he lives in Falmouth, Maine. Matthew received his degree in sociology at the University of Southern Maine and teaches workshops for transitions as part of adult education classes. He speaks nationally on issues of mental health, suicide prevention, and LGBTQ issues. He is the host of two talk shows in Maine and New Hampshire, and in his free time, he enjoys sacred circle dance, hiking, kayaking, spending time with friends, and he loves to tell a good story. His story tonight, this afternoon, is titled, Basement Years. Come on up, Matthew. In my next life, I'm going to be six, seven, <laughs> and, a, and a lot more baritone. So my mother tells me the story of my first baby steps. She says that I didn't crawl much, that I just got up one day and ran. I was early, nine months, and I guess the doctor told her to slow me down or I was going to have bowed legs. I do. <laughs> I don't have many stories of my childhood. My mom and I aren't close. We haven't spoken in years. My family comes from generational violence and poverty. We pass down this physical abuse like a family heirloom. It is part of our family culture to not stay connected. 
and I choose to distance myself as there is no growth or movement in my family to reconcile. They disown me, and I guess I sort of disown them. I do love and forgive them, but that doesn't establish a relationship. It is healthier for me to not have them in my life. It was during a dark time in my life that I would learn the true meaning of baby steps. I'd experienced a major depressive episode, and I wound up in the hospital for three months. When I got discharged, I wound up getting a basement apartment. I mean that literally. It received very little sunlight, and if I really wanted to know what the weather was, I needed to go outside and around the corner to figure it out. It contributed to my melancholy. It always was so dark and gloomy. It also flooded. I was told that I could leave if I wanted to, so I had to decide against homelessness or mold. <coughs> I was also at that point living a basement mentality where I'd spend the majority of my days watching reruns of Criminal Minds, <laughs> smoking cigarettes, and drinking coffee. Nobody had any expectations of me and I didn't have any for myself. The deal was I was to collect my disability check, take my meds, and stay out of crisis. The majority of the interactions that I did have were with mental health providers. And there was, no one, there was one particular conversation that I had with a mental health provider that left me yearning for more. It went sort of like this. John, I don't know, I want to do more with my life. This is very unsatisfying, it's boring, and it's pointless. Well, he said, do you keep a clean house? Well, the fact is he knew I did, I often bragged about it. I said, yes. Do you pay your bills and go grocery shopping? I remember sitting up a little straighter thinking this was setting me up for something really encouraging when he said, well, what more is there? And I remember feeling like I got kicked in the gut, that my life was being summed up by activities of daily living. It hurt. I began to be curious about my true potential, and I began on a journey of self-care. I found, on a simple sense, that if I tr treated my body better, I felt better. I quit smoking a 22-year, two-pack-a-day habit. I gave up coffee. I lost 40 pounds. I began exercising, praying, and meditating. I was healthier than I'd ever been in years, both in body and in spirit. It was actually during a prayer meditation ritual that I noticed it. It was a lump. Initially, I thought it was maybe lifting too many weights, but it didn't hurt. I assumed that I had just pulled a muscle. I waited a few weeks, I talked it over with some of my friends, and they encouraged me I should go see my doctor. So I went and had it checked out, and it turned out to be a very aggressive cancer, in fact, the most aggressive cancer on the planet, triple negative invasive ductile carcinoma. Upon receiving the news, I was calm. Somewhere deep down, I knew it was cancer, and I was also glad. The question for me was gonna be, what was I gonna do about it? And at first I decided I was gonna let the cancer overtake me. I planned a private retreat with my sole intention of making peace with God. I was 41 years old, and when I reflected back on my life, it was pretty grim. I had to look death straight in the eyes. I had to seriously inventory my life. I had so much regret. So I decided I would do the surgeries, but I wasn't gonna do the intravenous chemo and the radiation. Well, I was in physical therapy after some of the surgeries, and the nurse asked, why haven't you started chemo yet? 
I said, she seemed genuinely perplexed. And I said, I'm not going to. If I die, I die. She said, I said, I'm not sure I want to live anyway. She said, uh, we looked at each other straight in the eyes. She went over to the phone. She picked it up and she made my chemo appointment. She came back and she said, sometimes I think we have too many choices. <laughs> but right then there were two. Was I going to lay down and die? Or was I going to give this another shot? Can you believe she did that right in front of me? <laughs> um, I would give my life another chance. I wanted to know, in fact, I was desperate to know, what is my true potential? When I have to look death in the eyes again, I don't want to be so full of regrets. I don't want so many times where I thought I would do this differently or, or not do something at all when I should have. I will tell you it was an arduous nine months of chemo, surgeries, infections, radiation. Once the dust settled and I was barely alive, I realized I had to learn how to live. Well, having cancer provided a great template for me. I was a hero. None of this was my fault. I was brave and courageous. Strangers and friends had visited, provided cards, flowers, meals. I remember I received so much attention that I was really overwhelmed by all the love and support. How do I pick up the pieces of a life I hadn't particularly wanted? One of the first things I did was apply the cancer paradigm to my life of trauma and mental illness. It was not my fault. I didn't do anything to deserve it. That I was truly brave and courageous and that as hard as cancer was, battling this trauma and mental illness was harder. I was able to shed the guilt and the shame that was never mine in the first place. I decided I wanted some of the good stuff that life has to offer and desperate to know my potential. So I got myself a new apartment, one that was full of sunlight, and I keep the shades up all the time. <laughs> I began to remedy my social skills. I wrote and published my resurrected spirit. I'm the host of two talk shows. I've made hundreds of talks. I made that choice. I chose life and all its spectrum of emotion. Thank you. Hi, folks. Usually I come back up here to end the show, but I'm having a little pre, uh, you know, I'm here a little early because, as you know, our last story tonight is also our MC, Pat Spaulding. <laughs> Pat lives in Rye, New Hampshire. She's a writer and storyteller who's been telling tales locally since the early 80s and, of course, our wonderful MC for our program. Pat has been married and single, a puppeteer and not a puppeteer. <laughs> she enjoys dress-up occasions, the celebrity of being a majorette with the leftist marching band. <laughs> Observing her own life as it unfolds, and then she likes to talk about it. Tonight, she'll tell us a story from her childhood called The Cloud Game. Come on up, Pat. Thanks, Amy. 
might be about right. Ugh. Ada. You were a good one. I was probably a teenager when I had walked into my grandfather's house unannounced and come upon him. I saw his back. He was staring at a photograph of my grandmother in her youth. It hung on the wall, and she had her hair swept up in that Gibson girl styled. It's so lovely. And with one of those high collars around her neck with lace and a beautiful bodice on her dress and a tiny waist. She was gorgeous. I didn't want to interrupt this moment of intimacy, so I just quietly backed away, left the house, and then returned again with a little more noise. That's the way I used to enter the house, because my grandparents lived across from us, next door, for my whole childhood. There was a well-worn path between our kitchen and the kitchen of my grandmother's house. And it crossed no roads, no neighbor's yards, but just went up and over a small rise through a pine grove. And from the time that I was four years old, I could travel that path all by myself, so long as I told my mother where I was going. It was kind of a storybook childhood, like, over the pine grove and through the woods to grandmother's house I go. And when I arrived, I came into the smells of bread baking and burnt sugar on the crust of a pie. Uh, my grandmother had a a whole flour bin underneath the, the counter, like in the old days, and it must have had about 10 pounds of gold metal flour in it at all times. Never got millers or moths, because every day she was dishing out flour into bowls, and she was whipping up pastries, pies, cookies, cakes that had all wonderful names like Blueberry Buckle, Brown Betty, Apple Pan Dowdy. I really liked Boston Cream Pie, but my very favorite cookie was a cornflake cookie with a maraschino cherry right in the center. Grammy was not only a wonderful cook and baker, but she had style. She was classy. She could wear hats. She cared about her appearance. In fact, she even had a milliner in Nashua, New Hampshire, close to Hudson, where we lived, who would design hats for her to match her coats and dresses that she picked up. She was kind of a church lady in that way. Not in a religious sense, though. She was a congregationalist. <laughs> she liked church for the community. She was the president of the fortnightly club for probably about 20 years. Nobody ever tried to change that because she could organize a church supper. And she would just you know, tell people what to do, what to bring, put it all out. My grandfather, he was her sous chef, and he was on the team to do what needed to be done, helped her set up the tables, take things down. He was there. He framed the, the paintings that she did because she, she painted watercolor paintings, which she exhibited and sold. There was nothing that my grandmother, Ada Lucy Nutbrown Spaulding, set her mind to do that she couldn't do very well except maybe the laundry. 
Now, she could do the laundry, putting clothes into the machine, take them out, putting them in the basket, but she could not carry the basket down to the, the clothesline because when she was 55 years old, long before I ever knew her, before I came on the scene, she'd had a major stroke, which my parents always referred to as Grammy's shock. <laughs> That's what they used to call it. I figured, well, all grandmothers have shocks. I mean, like, I'd heard of a, a shock of white hair, and my grandma had that, and lines on her face and glasses. All grandmothers have that, like my grandmother, and those big kind of clunky shoes. But the difference between my grandmother and other grandmothers of my friends was that my grandma's hand, her right hand, didn't work, and she had been right-handed. It was always clamped in a fist. She couldn't open. And her right leg didn't work real well either. So when she walked, she had to plunk down a cane and swing her leg forward and plunk down the cane and swing her leg forward. But that didn't stop her. I mean, she could cross the path between our houses. She was just a little bit slower. You know, she could even take the laundry down from that clothesline. My grandfather would leave the empty basket there, and then she'd, she'd go down and she could unpin it, let the clothes drop in the basket, knock it over a little further with her cane, unpin the next one, and leave it for Gramps to pick up later. This happened to be laundry day in the summer, and uh, it's a nice warm day, late afternoon. My grandfather had hung the clothes, and then he'd gone off to do an errand. So Grammy decided she was going to take the clothes down, and she plunked down her cane, walked down that path between our houses, that branched off to the clothesline, plunked down her cane, swung her leg forward, plunked down her cane. The cane slipped, and she fell. She hadn't hurt herself, but she couldn't get up. So she just lay on, on her back, made herself as comfortable as possible, and she waited for my grandfather to get home. It was a warm day. She knew he'd be back. But I came along the path first. And when I saw my grandmother lying on the ground, this was pretty shocking. This was strange. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. My grandmother was not a camper. My parents were, and I went camping. But Grammy, she didn't, she didn't look right on the ground. So I said, Grammy, why are you lying down on the ground? And she didn't want to upset me by telling me that she had fallen. So she just smiled up at me like she always did, a welcome smile. And um, without skipping a beat, she said, well, I was waiting for you to come along so that we could play the cloud game. And she patted the ground beside her. Lie down beside me. So I did, and I snuggled up to her powdery smelling arm. And then she said, look up at the sky. See the clouds? What pictures are they making? I looked up and said, Oh, I see a horse. It's being ridden by a fish. Uh-oh. The fish is opening its mouth. I think it's a dragon, Grammy. The horse disappeared. Oh. Did the dragon eat him? No, Grammy. He just disappeared. 
He's a cloud. <laughs> so we must have played the cloud game for about five minutes when finally she said, do you think your mother might like to play this game? <laughs> I said, yeah, sure, but she's talking on the phone. Well, why don't you go tell her that I am lying here on the ground waiting for her to come and play? Can you tell her exactly that? Okay. So I got up, ran down the path, told my mother what my grandmother had asked me to tell her. And my, my mother just slammed the phone down without saying goodbye, ran out the door and up the path. I was surprised that she was so anxious to play the cloud game. <laughs> But when she got to my grandmother, she didn't lie down beside her. She started acting all nervous and it was, was she okay? And should she bring a chair, a chair in the middle of the pine grove? And did she hurt herself? Grammy was trying to calm my mother down. Dorothy, I'm fine, I'm fine, you can help me stand up. So Ma did and I brushed pine needles off Grammy's dress and Ma insisted that we walk her back to her house over the patio. but. Grammy insisted that we go down and take the clothes off the line and bring those back if, if she was gonna, we were gonna help her with something. So we got her back to her house and she shooed us off when she was in the kitchen. Said she'd make some lemonade and fix some cookies and we got the clothes, brought them back to the patio. By the time we arrived, she'd already gone out and she was setting up the glass top table. And my mother and I brought out the pitcher of lemonade and plate of cookies cornflake cookies with a little maraschino cherry on the top and um, paper cups and we sat around. I told my mother all about the cloud game and then my grandmother said, oh Dorothy, you didn't get a chance to play, did you? <laughs> well, why don't you just take a couple of towels from that basket, lie them down here on the patio where you can see up through the trees and it's fine, Dorothy. Patty will show you how to play. <laughs> so my mother set down a couple of towels on the patio and we lay down on each one. I cozied up to mom and said, look at the clouds, mommy. What pictures did they make? Tell me, what do you see? Now, this story happened probably when I was about, um, my grandmother was about 10 years younger than I am right now. And I've lived long enough to, you know, be in situations that have flattened me on my back on the ground, if not literally, emotionally. But I have the example of my grandmother Ada Lucy Nut Brown Spaulding to show me how to rise to a challenge. And she showed me that it's not always pushing and trying really hard to change something. Sometimes rising to the challenge is just accepting a situation for a while. Just letting yourself lie there and wait. Imagine things, look at the pictures, because eventually 
something or someone will come along to help you stand up and keep going. Ada, you were a good one. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We were all so honored to be here again at the West End Studio Theatre Stage with the Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One. And we just cannot thank enough, we give enough thanks to Stephanie for bringing us yet again. We just love Stephanie. All of tonight's, or today's, I should say, tellers first shared their story with us at our regular show on PPM TV. Um, and you are all invited to come and be part of our live audience there. It is the last Tuesday of most months from 6 to 8 p.m. This is at Portsmouth Public Media TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth. Our next show coming up is September 24th. And, um, we do have handouts that mostly give you information for our just-released 2020 dates. Um, we still have a few more, you know, this fall. Um, but it also gives you information on how to reach us and find us online and see everything that we're doing that you are invited to be a part of. Um, you can also watch True Tales Live on PPM TV. It's channel 98 on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. It streams on live, um, online anytime at uh, ppmtvnh.org slash live. Or you can go to our great website now, which someone's going to have to help me. What do, what do we end up with? True Tales Live? NH.org. So there you have like the buttons you can click listen or watch or whatever. It's really easy. Uh, and if you want to join us on the other side of the mic, we welcome that. And we can help you. You can contact us, truetaleslive1 at gmail.com. Is that still right? NH1. Okay, truetaleslivenh1 at gmail.com, and we can give you information on signing up to be one of our storytellers and also about coming to our workshops where we can work with you to help you figure out if you even want to do it, you know, and have to commit. You can come and try it out and we can go from there. The workshops are the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9 p.m. also at the PPM TV studios in Portsmouth. Um, and all of those are free and open to everyone. So, let's take this moment to once again thank today's wonderful storytellers as they come on out. We've got Pat Spalding, Bill Maddox, Nina Lasiga, Beth Tenner, Martin Rumscheidt, Matthew Witham.